This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is uh, Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Probably the most savage journalist around, Max Blumenthal. Thank you for joining <laughs> me in the trenches. Thanks for having me on. Um, how's the information? Here. Yeah, how's the information war treating you? It's great. You know, I I got a target on my back, a digital target on my back, and it yields lots of new revelations. Actually to be targeted uh, by people like our new Minister of Truth, Nina Jankowitz, who was just given the apparent law enforcement powers and who's been spreading lies about me in the gray zone for years. So, you know, we live in interesting times. Um, what sort of target? I mean, is it, a, is it a, a bad one or is it just a kind of mild, mediocre target? Well, the people who target me although they get elevated to important positions, aren't specific, particularly the most intelligent or creative people. They are extremely paranoid and they imagine that, you know, they, or they, they would like to believe that I'm some sort of uh, disinformation agent for various dictatorships because they are incapable of grappling with facts or factual or investigative journalism that presents a view of reality in which they are the villains and they are the disinformation agents, or in which uh, the, the United States is not spreading freedom and democracy when it, for example, places high-powered weapons in the hands of Al-Qaeda-affiliated insurgents in Syria or uh, neo-Nazi battalions integrated into the Ukrainian military. Um, and with our media, I mean, I live here in Washington. I'm in the heart of the Beltway or what's known as the swamp. And it is literally a swamp. Washington, D.C. was built on a swamp. Um, but the, the swamp is constantly being filled and no one's draining it. Um, and a, a real component of this swamp filling, and what I should clarify, when we talk about the swamp, we're talking about a vast national security and corporate state architecture of deep corruption and hostility to uh, democracy, to actual democracy at home, militarism, um, a kind of do a, a uniparty. When we talk about the swamp filling up, we have to consider the media being one of the most important components of this, and that reporters who, you know, participate in the swamp culture are consistently rewarded for basically being access journalists or what I would call stenographers for power. And then the few of us that are left doing alternative journalism, doing the kind of journalism we just associated with uh, what, what journalism 101, um, afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted, the kind of stuff Seymour Hirsch, figures like Seymour Hirsch traditionally did. We are figures of hatred for the rest of the media uh and we it feels like we're sort of an endangered species but at the same time the public really seems to be hungry to know what's happening behind the curtain because the public has been abandoned uh and is large segments of the public are deeply angry so at mm -hmm. the gray zone we have a we have a nonpartisan audience you know a lot of people on the left love what we do and people on the right as well um because you know the 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 hatred of the establishment here in the swamp, it, it really isn't limited to any political sect or party. How is it that the free world, I mean, America is pretty much the bastion of the free world. How is it that it can have a ministry of truth? There's something weirdly paradoxical. Well, that was sort of a you know, term that those of us who oppose the Department of Homeland Security having this disinformation governance board mm. came up with to characterize its underlying ulterior intention. Because what Nina Jankowicz, who is uh, apparently insane, um, if you look at her you know, performances, she's just a complete nutcase. Um, 
you know, she does these singing performances about disinformation that are Broadway themed, uh, just a complete whack job. And the DHS director, Alexandra Mayorga said he wasn't aware of these performances. But, uh, you know, if you consider what she says, she says that she's just trying to provide accurate information to people in local communities who are overwhelmed with what she calls disinformation. And, you know, to the rest of us, especially in alternative media, it's, and I hate to use this cliched term, Orwellian, that the government will determine what disinformation is. And logically, that means that the government, the state, we live in an imperial state, is determining what truth is, what reality is. And that's what this disinformation freakout is all about. It really emanates from the election of Donald Trump in 2016 and in the background, the success of Brexit and the fear of the uniparty in Washington, which is ostensibly liberal, but actually highly authoritarian of uh, the, the American public and populism and what they would do if they were left with a free flow of information and the ability to vote for anyone who appeals to their angry sensibility and their interests like Donald Trump, who's considered like a carnival barker, a billionaire carnival barker, uh, frightened the establishment, even though he himself was powerless to really resist it. What were they afraid of with Trump? It wasn't exactly what he would do. It was what he would say. And they were afraid of the freedom that he had on Twitter to just throw down these rhetorical lightning bolts like Zeus and say the truth about an establishment that he knew very well, who's... Uh, you know, key figures like in the pantheon of the U.S. political establishment he donated to, he hung out with Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, uh, Jeffrey Epstein was in the mix. I mean, Donald Trump was a dangerous figure. So they, the first speech that Hillary Clinton delivered after losing an election that she did not consider legitimate and which she subsequently blamed on Russia was a speech about fake news. And before 2016, 2017, fake news was basically considered these spammy websites that trafficked in um, clickbait stories that weren't necessarily true in order to get uh, you know, stupid people to click so that they could get ad revenue. That's what fake news was. After Hillary Clinton's speech, fake news was anything that interfered with the imperatives of the establishment. And then they developed the terminology of disinformation and misinformation. And that's what disinformation is, which is why it's so dangerous that it is being now legislated and we have to, we have to ask what they will do. But what we can be certain of is that in a quasi-democracy like the US or a country that needs to be perceived as a democracy in order to advance its soft power on the world stage, that it cannot openly censor like a uh, one-party authoritarian state. And so it needs to enact more sophisticated mechanisms of controlling speech, controlling what its citizens see and hear. And that's why the DHS has to have this governance board, because they're still trying to figure out what to do and how to do it. And I, you can, and they're not answering questions. All uh, interactions with the media at the DHS Ministry of Truth, I mean, we should call it that, are embargoed. And they will not provide details of what Nina Jankowitz intends to do. I don't know if she totally knows what she's doing. But I gained some insights into what the plan is, at least the broader outlines of it, from watching Barack Obama, who's now the key salesman for the establishment in Washington, gets paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to speak to industry and establishment academic groups. He gave a speech uh, last month at the uh, at Stanford University. Stanford is a bastion of it's a it's a training ground for the CIA, and a number of former spooks and even current spooks teach there. And Obama spoke to this. Um, phony cyber policy institute that's sponsored by some billionaire. In the front row was Michael McFaul, the former U.S. ambassador to Russia, who's pushing for this crazy policy of escalation with Ukraine right now. And Obama was speaking to an audience of 
students who will be the future Nina Jankowitzes. Uh, we may never know their names, but they will be their 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 role is to go behind the scenes and control the internet. And Obama is the salesman for this agenda because the internet will be controlled according to his aggressively centrist, seemingly sensible, but actually deeply authoritarian worldview. And Obama actually explains what he wants to do in general terms at the end of the speech. You have to listen to like 40, 45 minutes of Obama-esque bullshit and doublespeak to get there. And then once you get there, he says that we are going to, and, and he frames it so, it's so slick the way he frames it. We are going to make the algorithm transparent to the government, not to the public. The public should know what the algorithms are, but he, we're going to make it transparent to the government. And the government is the people in that room that he's speaking to who are not elected, who we have no control over. And then they will determine the algorithms for these private Silicon Valley social media platforms. So they will be able to freely suppress anyone they want, according to the concept that they uphold of disinformation, which is anything that gets in their way. And that really speaks to the battle that's been taking place around Twitter uh, and mm -hmm. Elon Musk, who, who apparently tapped out. I mean, maybe if you're in South Africa, you might have some more insight into what really took yeah. place, but they were going after him in the media here, going after his family, going after him in the most personal way possible. They, do, they did the same thing they did to Joe Rogan when Joe Rogan started to really threaten the COVID agenda by yeah. having you know Robert Malone on, is at first they tried to challenge him directly on the merits. You know, they tried to challenge Joe Rogan as uh, 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 someone who spreads medical misinformation. And they rolled out these doctors who are actually fake doctors themselves who are affiliated with uh, some of the major foundations that were scripting global COVID policy, like the Rockefeller Foundation. One of their operatives was leading this letter demanding that Spotify censor Joe Rogan, but it didn't go anywhere. Spotify wasn't going to just kill off their most popular host. So what did they do in the end? They found some video that could be plausibly portrayed as racist, even though, you know, Rogan was doing like a George Carlin impersonation and Ro Carlin is like a notorious anti-racist. Um, he was like, Carlin was like the ultimate race trader, honestly, like in a good way. And uh, I really identify with him. But anyway, they've got Rogan to take, they did portray him as a racist. Several episodes were taken offline. It felt like Rogan was kind of neutered. He took a step back. And that's what they were doing to Elon Musk in the media. I'm not really sympathetic to Elon Musk for a lot of reasons, but the New York Times ran this giant cover piece on him just, you know, coming from apartheid South Africa, his dad was involved in the politics. And suddenly Musk takes a step back and we don't know why. I don't know if it was this, the, the personal attacks. He tweeted something about him feeling like his life was in danger. The, DO, he, the DOJ might've had a word with him, but, uh, it seems like that battle has been settled. And at the same time, the other billion, the, the billionaires who are backing the establishment, the Soros's, for example, uh, his Open Society Foundations, the Rockefeller Foundations, mm. the key NGOs that they were sponsoring, um, from Media Matters, I used to work there like 15 years ago. It's totally changed from what it used to be, uh, down to the Black Lives Matter Foundation, issued a letter demanding basically that Obama's agenda be enacted at Twitter and that no one be have their accounts restored who were kicked off for hate or harassment. Basically, we know who that refers to. It refers to Donald Trump. Uh, they, that was the agenda. And it looks like they have for now kept Trump off Twitter. So that's, that's ostensibly what this is about, but it's also about um, creating leeway for them to start to deplatform or, or outlets like the gray zone that are associated more with the political left that publish factual journalism, but which threaten their interests in a fairly serious way, I think. But I mean, do left and right even mean anything anymore? I mean, I would have considered myself uh, before this COVID nonsense, I would have considered myself um, somewhat right wing. Now I don't even know what that means anymore because yeah, I'm reading Grey Zone and agreeing with everything. 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm disgusted with the organized left. And honestly, they're disgusted with me. I mean, they made it known. They targeted me in a in a really sick and personal way. And they've done it again and again on Syria. Uh, for example, there was a letter signed by a number of people I had even been close friends with. Uh, most of these were like NGO types. De demanding that I be basically blacklisted and boycotted because I exposed or helped expose the white helmets, the Syrian white helmets, as basically a gigantic intelligence front uh, designed to stimulate public support for a military intervention in Syria that would have been disastrous. Then we had the COVID experience. You know, I ultimately, when the mandates came in, I saw through the lies about the so called vaccine. I saw that it was not going to end the pandemic, that these mandates were anti-working class, that it was just it just went against everything I believed in to fire people for not taking an experimental gene therapy injection. And now I've been out there demanding that these people who are like public school teachers and firefighters and public workers be, have to get their jobs back. I would think that would be a left wing position, but somehow the organized left has upheld the Pfizer mRNA vaccine which has an efficacy rate of like less than 20 weeks against Omicron as this holy talisman and refuses to see lockdowns as anything but a purely technical solution. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you have even had organized left groups in this country, in my city in Washington, D.C., back in January before Putin ended COVID by you know going into Ukraine. <laughs> they, were demand they were demanding in Washington, D.C., a China-style lockdown like we're seeing in Shanghai now. And I just, I mean... I've defended China against all the new Cold War attacks, but that to me is a level of insanity that I just can't be a part of. And now you see those same groups out in the streets protesting for abortion rights. But we still have COVID, so I guess we don't need the lockdown anymore. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, and, and meanwhile, those groups are supposed to be the front of anti-war organizing in the US. And they're getting flanked from the left by the MAGA Republicans, the America First faction of the Republicans. Marjorie Taylor Greene, who when she came into Washington, she was like considered the most offensive, ghastly figure from the Trumpian cesspool. And now she is just dunking on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the squad who represent the legacy of the organized left's electoral organizing, she's dunking on them and outflanking them from what I consider the left on military aid to Ukraine, calling it a money laundering operation, which it is. The Congress just voted for $40 billion to be mm -hmm. stolen from the American taxpayer, extracted from the taxpayer, washed through Ukraine through all of these contracts, and sent right back to Washington, Silicon Valley, and wealthy areas of the U.S. to the contractors and the arms industry. It's just a gigantic theft, just like Afghanistan was. Not one Democratic vote against it. Not, no members of the progressive squad who say that they're socialists. Not one of them rose up against this. They're Why? scared. But we have 50, over 50 Republican votes against it, and the leading voice was Marjorie Taylor Greene. So what is going on? with the left and right. I mean, I have my theories, but it's for someone like me who was embraced, then discarded, then embraced again by the left, and someone who traditionally would come under attack from websites like Breitbart, it's a, it's a pretty, and now seeing like Breitbart lead the, help lead the charge against this Ukraine aid package. It's a very confusing time. Yeah, just on that, um, for those who, who don't know you in my audience, what is your background? Well, I mean, everyone can see a cartoonish version of my background at Wikipedia, which is like Jimmy Wales defamation site. <laughs> Most of my Wikipedia entry is written by one I would consider a British intelligence operation known as Philip Cross. And, it, you know, but... Uh, one, one, one aspect of my background that people focus on is my family. You know, my father was a Clinton advisor. He's also a historian and a journalist. 
he was the first from the first generation of alternative media, but ultimately found his way into mainstream media, supported the Democratic Party. And I got into journalism during the second Bush administration, right after 9-11. 9-11 was a formative event for me. And it was an unusual time if you consider what's happening today. But mm. at the time, to me, it considered, I thought that the left and a wing of the Democrats were doing what they were supposed to do, which was to protest this war, um, to oppose Bush's extremism and his corporatism, and to rally hundreds of thousands of people in the streets against the war. And so I thought that there was, at that time, an avenue within a wing of one of the two parties to affect the kind of social change I wanted to see, which was, you know, opposition to corporate rule and opposition to uh, permanent wars of regime change. And the um, first book I wrote, Republican Gomorrah, was sort of a journey into the, the Christian right that I thought animated George W. Bush's agenda and gave him a lot of grassroots support for not just the war in Iraq, but also for his policy on Israel, which was like the classic, uh, it was a, an, an aggressive policy supporting ethnic cleansing and the siege of Gaza. I, after that book, which became, was really successful because uh, one, one of the two major factions in the US saw it as a, like a well-articulated vehicle for their um, attacks on the Republicans. I, I suppose. I mean, I got on national public radio at one point and my book surged to like in the top 10 of Amazon for a few days. Um, I, I, I decided to invest with the success of that book in a project on Israel-Palestine, which culminated in the book Goliath, mm. 2013. But between those years, I was seeing what happened when the Democrats were in power in this new era of the war on terror, the Arab Spring, Barack Obama kind of capturing the brains of everyone around me, all of my colleagues seeing him as this messiah figure. And he presided over more disproportionate, heinous violence against besieged Palestinians than George W. Bush had. Uh, he was presided over the destruction of Libya, the beginning of the Syria dirty war. And so for me, I was the Obama era was very disillusioning and it eventually led me to a point where I had to question whether there was any avenue within American liberalism or progressivism for achieving the change that I wanted to see. And, you know, then we get to the Trump era. And I think the Trump era kind of clarified everything for me uh, about who really controls our government and what my role as a journalist should be. And uh, it's put me at odds with a lot of former colleagues. Um, a lot of people who supported me in the past probably think that I'm insane, but I find that, you know, traveling around this country or traveling around the world, the majority of people I meet think the same way. And they are just, they just have a sense of complete betrayal of their leadership. And just to go back to the question of, you know, why, why is the right taking this role against Ukraine? Why is the left, uh, at least the elected left or the organized left, so weak and muted? Um, the, or the right may be opportunistic, and that's good. You know, we want politicians to be opportunistic in a, set, in a way that represents their base and their constituency. And the America First faction of the Republicans is representing a constituency, opportunistically, ex exploitatively maybe, uh, that has borne the brunt of these wars of terror on the Middle East. They bore the moral injury. They, Many of them are veterans who served in those wars and came back with their minds and bodies destroyed. They have borne the brunt of the opioid crisis, another instance of corporate America just ravaging the American public. They have borne the brunt of neoliberalism. They are the ones who saw their jobs be shipped overseas and they're angry. Mm. And the Democratic Party's base, while it includes many people who say that they're angry about certain issues, 
with the exception of the kind of the mi- the minority contingent, the brown and black contingent in the U.S. who are just historically oppressed uh, and actually don't have the, who've, and who've been completely sold out by their leadership within the party. The Black Congressional Caucus is just a corporate front. Um, you know, the, the real influencers, the movers and shakers that are rising through the ranks of the Democratic Party, people like Nina Jankowitz, they are the professional managerial class who are doing very well in this economy and in this system. They're making over $200,000, $300,000. They're living like, they're working hard and playing hard. They live on the coasts. They go to good schools and they have really, they have skin in the game. They want, that's why they want Twitter to maintain the algor- the current algorithm. They're the key voices and uh, they're happy. So that's what's going on here. The, the, the squad has no reason to really take on the system or the establishment when that's who its base is. You've covered some very um, fiery talking points over the years. Um, I said I was going to ask you about that video from 2009 that uh, that went viral and then YouTube deleted it. It's a very difficult yeah. video to find. So let's uh, let's <laughs> let's start there. Well, it's called "Feeling the Hate in Jerusalem," and it was part of a series I did, just the "Feeling the Hate" extravaganza. You might be able to find it if you look hard enough on YouTube for. Um, for all those, I made a playlist of those videos, minus the most famous one, Feeling the Hate in Jerusalem. This one, uh, if you, you might be able to search for it on Vimeo, Feeling the Love in Jerusalem. I know there was an edition there. Several other platforms posted it, and those platforms have disappeared. I tweeted some of it, so you can search search the name under on Twitter under my name. But yeah, it's been it was it's been officially disappeared and it was really my first experience with social media censorship. Um, and I think it's a really relevant video because what it portrays just through me and, uh, uh, then friend going out in central Jerusalem to this area of bars where a lot of American Jewish Americans and, uh, who a lot of them were like going to, do like these religious studies but they spent their time there like with their wealthy families money from long island just getting wasted and doing tons of drugs and i went and asked them about barack obama's speech in cairo where this president who we now know is a complete phony uh but he was being portrayed particularly in pro-israel media as a secret muslim aligned with the muslim brotherhood who comes from uh communist heritage and was going to destroy israel and i know in israel there were well there were discussions in the street in israel that i would hear about killing him so i just went out went out with a camera and asked these drunk youth what do you think of obama and they were just like getting in a line to call him the n-word to call for his assassination to just and then they were like you could see they were competing with one another to say the most racist thing they could think of i mean it was amazing i was actually like I could I couldn't believe that they were willing to say this on camera, but that's the environment that they come from, where everybody talks like that, and nobody sees anything wrong with it. Um, so I put it up, put it on YouTube. It just started exploding within minutes. They didn't have some phony algorithm back then. It was the good old days, like you could find anything you wanted. And this is what they wanted to suppress. And then the attacks started coming in from like the biggest pro-Israel journalist, Jeffrey Goldberg, um, this, this black American liberal journalist that, um, you know, the, the elites were promoting named ta Coates. He decided to write an attack on me because it was his way of like currying favor with the, the, you know, guys who were going to give him fellowships and everything. Everyone was attacking me. 50 cent, the rapper put it on his site, you know, to show like the real grassroots, people like really saw what this is about that it finally it exposed the the real racism that no one could talk about and the genocidal mentality of people who are just being raised right outside new york city new New york channel five in new york reported on it they did a segment on it like local youth have been caught in a video calling for obama to be killed and calling him you know it was a huge scandal then the mother of one of the kids started writing me and she started a campaign to get the video removed 
but she was writing me and she said, because of you, my son has had to go to alcohol, you know, to go to rehab and quit drinking alcohol. How dare you? And I'm like, isn't that a good thing? Like what you're a monster. Like you raised this kid. Should, why should you be mad at me? Um, and then the video disappears from YouTube. I put it up on the Huffington post as well, which is like one of the, you know, major mainstream, um, liberal sites in the U S now, but it used to be kind of an open blog and you could post anything you wanted. If you were verified, they removed it and they have sent me an angry note and said, this is not journalism. Like, how dare you? And, you know, never would let me work publish there again. Um, and every Jewish American media outlet covered it. It just, it exploded. There's an interesting irony though, uh, because you're Jewish. So there were, there were claims or accusations of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. And right. I know you've, I know you've mentioned, um, the non-Zionist thing. Uh, would you mind explaining, explaining that? Well, I've always, yeah, been called an anti, ever since that, ever since that video, I've been called mm. an anti-Semitic Jew, not just a self-hating Jew, but an anti-Semitic Jew. Um, and the hatred for me has been intense because I've ex helped expose the real Israel that a lot of Americans didn't know and which a lot of the sort of the Jewish establishment, which is just morally bankrupt, wanted to conceal from Jewish youth. And now we're at a phase where I feel like my work there was done. I, I, I feel like I ran up to this giant apartheid wall of information with a grenade, got like severely wounded in the process, but I opened up a hole there. And all these other people are running through that wall and people on the other side are hearing the truth. Um, so, you know, I've been put on all these lists of the Simon Wiesenthal uh, Center, which is a like basically a front for the Likud party in the United States, calling me one of their top anti-Semites two years in a row. I was listed as one of their top 10 anti-Semites. I was actually behind on that list, like ranked lower. No, I was ranked ahead of a neo-Nazi mass shooter and uh, just behind uh, Ayatollah Khomeini. Or Khomeini. Uh, so, and, and, and I was uh, right behind European sports stadiums. I mean, these lists were crazy, but they just wanted so badly to demonize me to the point where I could no longer be uh, taken seriously or listened to. But what wound up happening was that I was just at the forefront of a uh, tectonic shift in the way Jewish American youth see Israel. Um, and now, I mean, a lot of my views back in 2013 are pretty commonplace among Jewish Americans who, I, who aren't like Orthodox and aren't particularly religious. I know in South Africa, it's, it's different. The Jewish community there is much more conservative. It's smaller. It's much easier to antagonize people and to, um, uh, to, to, to isolate and stigmatize them. I mean, was, I saw what happened with Richard Goldstone where, you know, he was canceled from his own grandson's bar mitzvah. Uh, that kind of thing doesn't happen as frequently in the U S anymore. And, you know, I thought it was a great success. The, uh, the, even the Biden administration is deeply uncomfortable about Israel as they continue to send it weapons. Yeah, talk to me a little bit about about that. Uh, you are very critical of of Israel um, in the context of Gaza um, and the whole Palestinian cause. Uh, would you mind just giving me a summary? Well, I mean, Gaza is a project that is being exported around the globe by Israel's arms industry and by its security industry, which employs, I would, I would say is, re is responsible for the whole Israeli upper middle class. Um, there's actually a great documentary called The Lab about how important that is, the kind of project of, of exporting weapons and, and weapons systems and um, R&D around the world to the Israeli economy and to Israeli society. And Gaza is at the center of it. This is the most surveilled, besieged population on the planet. And why are they in Gaza? Why are they surrounded? I've been to Gaza um, three times, and I've seen it with my own eyes. I've walked through the, this wall and 
sort of caged in tunnel and through the buffer zone under drones with with remote controlled machine guns on walls by like a few hundred meters away, um, seeing shepherds getting shot at for walking too close to that wall. That's their prison cage and I've walked into it. Why are they in a cage? Because of the nature of Zionism in the state of Israel. They are the indigenous population that is not Jewish. And if they are not caged there indefinitely, then they will multiply and be, and they will cancel for permanently the uh, eth- the the ethnic uh, the the superior the dominant ethnos that comprises the so-called Jewish state. In other words, they will, you know, mix with West Bank Palestinians, Palestinians who are citizens of Israel. And they will outnumber the Jewish population and expose apartheid and initiate a process of uh, sort of, I would call it democratization. But what the Israeli securitocrats call it is, um, you know, genocide or extermination. Because they anything that compromises the Jewish demographic majority of Israel is seen as tantamount to genocide by the leadership of Israel. So Palestinians have to be kept in cantons and cages, and within Israel, their rights have to be severely limited. There's even a law that prevents Palestinian citizens of Israel from marrying Palestinians in the West Bank and living with them inside Israel. Uh, Palestinians in East Jerusalem, there are 300,000 of them, and there's a thing called the center of life policy, where they have to consistently prove that they live in Jerusalem. Jewish Israelis don't have to do this that they live in Jerusalem and that they spend the majority of their time there. Otherwise, they will lose their home. Their homes will be seized and put into the hands of some settler. And that means that if they marry someone from the West Bank, and the West Bank is like 10 minutes away by car, you know, without checkpoints and so on, that they have to move to a part of Jerusalem that West Bank Palestinians are allowed to enter. And there's one, there's basically one or two parts of of Jerusalem of the municipality where couples can live who are West Bank Palestinian and Jerusalem Palestinian. We're not even talking about like interracial or interreligious marriage. This is like inter-Palestinian marriage, and that these places are like some of the worst slums on the planet because they're on the Palestinian side of the separation or the apartheid wall. So there's a giant wall blocking them from the rest of Jerusalem. And yet they're not allowed to receive services from the Palestinian Authority because they're part of the Jerusalem municipality. So there's no fire services, no police services, no trash pickup, no road services. The traffic lights just sit there. They're not even working. Trash is piled up everywhere. There's giant potholes. People just as a community have to pull together and they're all because of who they decided to marry. And it's to keep the Jewish demographic majority intact in Israel. And so that is at the base of all these hideous wars we see in Gaza. And yet this racist apartheid state gets upheld by Washington and Brussels as this vibrant democracy that we have to continue supporting. Is this more a Zionist issue than it is a Jewish issue? Oh, it's a it's a very Jewish issue because uh, you know if you are raised Jewish in the West, you are forced to confront Zionism. At least if you're raised in a you know educated family, which you know I would say the majority of Western Jews are, you're forced to confront what Zionism is, and you are compelled to support it through various institutions. Like I went on the free birthright Israel trip just because I wanted to go on a free trip, and every Jew. I believe in South Africa and the United States and the UK, definitely in the United States, of a certain age, 18 to 25, I think it is now, is offered a free trip to Israel for 10 days. And you're treated like a king there. Um, and, you know, sexy soldiers accompany you and, you know, try to win your friendship and even like get you in bed. Uh, everything is done to basically love bomb you and make you support Zionism. So, Are Jews responsible collectively for the crimes against Palestinians? No, but 
when we're thrust into a situation like that, we do have an obligation, a moral obligation to make a decision on Zionism and to speak out, I would say, against it because what it represents for Palestinians is what our families and our ancestors ancestors had to go through traditionally uh, in order to achieve some modicum of liberation. And it actually is true that not only was the, were the um, laws of occupation, the laws that govern the West Bank, transferred over from the British colonial authorities who previously ruled over Palestine before the establishment of the state of Israel, but they were also inspired by the laws of occupation that governed parts of Europe under the control of Nazi Germany. I mean, how did they just adopt a, a novel military legal system before they even captured the West Bank from 1948 to 1966? Much of northern Israel was under military occupation, military law, because Palestinians were concentrated there. They were citizens, but they lived under military law. How did they just, did they just, or they just so genius that they invented new military laws overnight? No, they just adopted it from other previous occupiers. Um, and these include occupiers who Jews fought against. I feel like that's a really, really good segue um, into. Uh, Zelensky and the theater that's happening yeah. there because because Zelensky is a Jew and everybody keeps arguing this point that well it doesn't make sense that he's a Jew and he's got Azov which which is a battalion full of neo-Nazis how how does this connection even work and how does this theater even come about well if you know one thing that I've always been called when you talk about the attacks on me as an anti-semite is a capo um, you probably know what that is. Maybe if your listeners don't, it refers to the Jews who assisted Nazi Germany and Nazi occupiers in the Jewish ghettos that preceded the concentration camps. And then they assisted in the concentration camps in order to basically preserve their own lives. And they, so they collaborated with the enemy to preserve their lives. And, and then in the, they were the last ones killed. Zelensky, that's actually kind of like a more appropriate term for Zelensky because he's actually a front man, a Jewish front man for an entire governing apparatus that is infested with open Nazis who are officially integrated into the Ukrainian SBU intelligence and security service and the Ukrainian National Guard. The people constantly referred to as defenders in Mariupol who are holed up at the Azovstal steel plant right now or the Azov Battalion, which was referred to even by the FBI as neo-Nazis. Uh, the New York Times and the BBC would do specials on them calling them neo-Nazis. Now they're just defenders. But those are the people that Zelensky's fronting for. And Zelensky, who seems to be on some... Con cocktail of drugs. I don't know what it is. I don't want it because he doesn't look well. Uh, he doesn't seem to be really actually in charge. He's just a front man and an actor. He's a trained actor. He's a very you know effective actor. And his job is to deflect from the reality on the ground and the reality of post-Maidan Ukraine by being the sort of Jewish bohemian who greets all of the democratic representatives as they come to Kiev. Uh, not a, you know, and there's nothing ostensibly Jewish about him except that his family's background many, many years ago was Jewish. In fact, when he was asked about his Jewishness in an interview before he became an international superstar in a French publication, he said, my Jewishness isn't something I really want to talk about. So why is it that something that he talks about? Why was it the first thing he said when he was asked about Putin's so like, uh, proposed plan to denazify Ukraine in his first speech on the war, which was probably written with assistance of U.S. Uh, operatives. And why? Because it's the perfect cover for the reality on the ground. And the reality on the ground is something we've written about at the gray zone, where dissidents, leftists, communists, uh, even libertarians, uh, Euroskeptics, uh, local officials who want to negotiate uh, humanitarian corridors with Russia, especially in the East, anyone who defies the Maidan regime is being assassinated, 
disappeared, tortured, jailed without charges by the Ukrainian SBU under direct orders of Zelensky. Uh, and this is not in any way a democracy. If it, I think it, the, the closest comparison would be uh, Pinochet's Chile in 1973, where you have a neoliberal president carrying out the fantasies of the IMF and a repulsively cynical sociopathic security service exterminating everyone in his way. So why did the U.S. weaponize uh, Ukraine then against Russia? Because of its location. Uh, it's the ultimate. I mean, if Afghanistan was the soft underbelly of, of the Soviet Union, Ukraine really held the key to destabilizing and balkanizing Russia. It was Big New Brzezinski who presided over the Afghan trap, the, 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 the bear trap strategy in Afghanistan for Carter when he was his national security chief in 1979, authorized the funding and training of the Mujahideen. He wrote in his book, um, The Global Chessboard, about how Russia could be successfully divided into three regions and weakened. And this is the fantasy that the national security state in the U.S. still entertains in, in, in its mind. Ukraine holds the key, a 2005 doc, uh, memo by STRATCOM, which is known as the private CIA here in Washington, consults for U.S. intelligence, said that without Ukraine, Russia will cease to exist. It actually says that. What do they mean by without Ukraine? They mean without a neutral Ukraine. A non-neutral Ukraine is a NATOized Ukraine like the one we currently see with advanced weapon systems pointed at Russia with a, a ferocious uh, army and security service trained by the West and armed by the West, terrorizing ethnic Russians, uh, killing them for the past eight years in the Donbass, and threatening Russia directly on its frontier. What does that mean for a country like Russia, which was successfully destabilized after the collapse of the Soviet Union, saw three to five million of its own citizens just die in excess deaths during the 1990s and is still trying to get back on its feet as a power? What does it mean? It means concentrating so much of your resources, which could have otherwise been spent on infrastructure or social spending, into a military confrontation with the West right on your doorstep. It's something unfathomable, unfathomable in the United States. There is no one in the United States who could think of a military confrontation with Russia and China on the U.S.-Mexico border. But that's mm. what Russia confronts with Ukraine, and that's what the U.S. was able to accomplish through the 2014 Maidan coup. I, suppose I mean, this the... war, Putin even said this took too long. This war could have been fought immediately after 20, the 2014 coup. And yeah. Uh, yeah. segments of the ethnic Russian population who were terrorized after 2014 would have supported it. Yeah, I suppose the, the red pull that's tough to swallow is that the real terrorists are coming from the West, aren't they? Well, the real terrorist is obviously a subjective concept, mm. Mm. but it's the hypocrisy of spending trillions of dollars on a war on terror, which really was a mm. war of terror for the people yeah. of the Middle East, yeah. and that the end product was that Al-Qaeda, which had basically been reduced to nothing after 9-11, was put on steroids and restored to its, to, not even restored to its former glory, but turned into this uh, powerful and yet nebulous global organization, while at the same time, the United States was returning to its post-World War II project of supporting Nazism, in order to undermine its geopolitical foe, Russia. I mean, both of these projects were ultimately aimed at Russia. And yeah, there are similar projects aimed at China, but none of it has the same kind, none of the US proxies have the same kind of perver ideological perversion of Al Qaeda or the Azov Battalion. And now, you know, you can't say this in public in the United States. I mean, what we are taught to believe in elementary school is that the United States stands against terrorism and Nazism. Exceptionalism. And, yeah. This is the, you know, one of, one of the 
key tenets of the exceptionalist narrative, because now we see the United States and its allies are just wantonly supporting Nazis in Ukraine. I mean, there's no limit or check on it. There was a debate in 2018 in Congress on whether the U.S. should send weapons to the Azov Battalion. Now it's just like all limits are off. One of the uh, members of Congress who was leading the charge against arming the Azov Battalion in Washington, his name is Ro Khanna. He comes from a very blue progressive district in California. He was kind of making himself into a successor of Bernie Sanders. He had some people who kind of came from the anti-war community working in his office. And so they managed to get this done. And he openly said, we cannot be sending weapons to neo-Nazis on Twitter. I caught him right as the war started, like in the first, the last week of um, February at a cafe on Capitol Hill. I was just walking around looking for members of Congress to interview. Nobody actually asked them critical questions about these issues. And he was just gung-ho for sending them stinger missiles, for sending them everything the U.S. could. And it sounded like he sounded like a Bush-era neoconservative. You know, this is about freedom. This is about democracy. We need to do this. And I put that interview online. And the first thing Ro Khanna does is accuse me of being a Russian agent. Mm. I mean, it was amazing. That's the response you get now for complaining about arming literal Nazis. And... I mean, we just saw this huge shooting spree in Buffalo, New York, by this incel, dweeb, little punk-ass kid who went to shoot black people, I guess, in Buffalo. Bizarre, uh, you know, with a bizarre manifesto. Uh, but he was wearing the sun and rod on his vest, um, on his like battle dress vest. The sun and rod is the black sun that is also worn in the same position on the battle dress uniform about as of battalion members across Ukraine. And it was inspired by something that members of the SS Einsatzgruppen who carried out the Holocaust of bullets in Europe wore on their uniforms. What does this say about our policy of towards Ukraine where so much of the $40 billion money laundering package was dedicated to refugee resettlement. Will we be resettling Azov Battalion members in our communities? Uh, people who are trained killers who advertised on social media the brutality that they committed against their fellow citizens? Uh, is there any check on this? Is there any vetting mechanism? Uh, no, no. You know, I'm listening to you talk and one of the things that keeps bothering me is how does one navigate the fog of war? I mean, propaganda seems to be at the highest that I can remember. Yeah, great question. I actually got to jump off in about five minutes, but uh, I'll tell you, uh, I was just in Harper's Ferry, West Virginia yesterday. And, you know, you think of West Virginia as a Rust Belt state. It's it votes Republican. It's you know, one of the poorest states in the union, people have been abandoned and hit hard by the opioid crisis. Um, during the lockdowns and, you know, these insane policies imposed on people during the pandemic, West Virginia's um, death rate from opioids went up 200%. Um, and they, they, it's one of Trump's bases there. But the Eastern panhandle of West Virginia, it gets a lot of the wealth from DC and Harper's Ferry is a tourist area. A lot of people go there to, it's where the civil rights movement was born in the US actually. W.E.B. Dubois started the civil rights movement there in the, around the turn of the century because that's where John Brown, the militant anti-slavery activist attempted to launch a raid to begin the civil war and to arm the black slave population against their masters. He failed, he was killed there. And so Harper's Ferry has this storied history it's near, not far from Washington. It's in West Virginia. And you go into that tourist area and every other house and restaurant has a Ukrainian flag flying in front of it. A flag that I identify not with the legacy of John Brown. And some of the houses actually have Ukrainian flags right next to Black Lives Matter flags and LGBTQ flags. It's like, you know, you take all of the uh, emojis that 
blue check influencers on Twitter having their bios and just put it on someone's building. And that's what you have in West Virginia. And it really shows the power of this propaganda campaign in a way I couldn't even believe. I expect that here in Washington, D.C., because people have skin in the game here. They profit from those contracts that are coming back from the Ukraine aid package. There, it's just the pure power of propaganda. I don't know what it's like in South Africa, but here for weeks and weeks and weeks, every newscast is led with um, Putin's barbarism, Putin's murder spree, Putin's genocidal Hitlerian baby-eating spree across Ukraine. Yeah, I'm sure some you know war crimes have been committed, uh, but uh, what what I've been finding is that it hasn't been enough. This is something I learned from Syria as well. It hasn't been enough for the media to report that civilians were killed in a bombing uh, that was intended for a military target, uh, that children were even killed in Ukraine. They need, and the Ukrainians understand this as well, information warfare is their most powerful weapon, just as the Syrian armed opposition backed by the CIA, white helmets understood. They need dramatic, emotionally potent events that they can market specifically to the American public in order to get the most influential sector of the American population in support of direct military intervention. And that's why we get shown events that might not necessarily have been and taken place the way we were told they were, mm. you know? The Mariupol theater bombing, for example, was the clearest one. They said 300 people were killed in this theater with like children, uh, you know, words saying marking children outside that Russia targeted it with aircraft and killed everyone inside. I knew from the Syrian experience and the staged chemical attacks, like the one that took place outside Damascus in Duma in April 2018, that this was suspect. And I began looking into it. You can see my investigation online. Mm. No one has debunked it. What stood out to me was that not one of the 300 people said to be killed were ever found. There were no photos of bodies. Yeah. There were no names of anyone. There were no photos of rescues taking place. And the Azov Battalion controlled the entire ground. No footage has even shown uh, any bombing. Mm. You know, you, Everybody has cell phones in Ukraine and smartphones with cameras. No bombing has been shown. And, you know, I went deeper and deeper, found photos showing that all cars were removed the day before the explosion took place, as if an explosion was being readied. You would have seen destroyed cars on the grounds. I mean, even with Maxar satellite, there were no cars there. Um, I've interviewed reporters who have been to the site, who've been in the theater, who tell me it appears pretty clearly like the blast occurred from within. Um, I can go on and on. But... You know, we have so many emotionally potent events from Ukraine, the most uh, powerful being Bucha, the so-called Bucha massacre. I think there's reason to believe that Russian soldiers killed people in Bucha, including civilians. But there may also be reason to believe that suspected collaborators were murdered by the Ukrainian SBU, the police and the neo-Nazis who went through the town the following day after it was uh, evacuated of Russian troops. And then we have all these war crimes committed against captured Russian soldiers, including by a U.S.-backed battalion, the Georgian Legion, um, led by a war criminal, uh, Mamoshvili, who's visited Congress and been celebrated by members of Congress. On camera, they executed wounded Russian soldiers, just yeah. shot them in the head. And this is just considered... Not the fog of war, but uh, you know what's necessary in Washington. There's, it hasn't interrupted, or it hasn't made its way to Harper's Ferry, where all these rich liberals are flying the Ukrainian flag. It hasn't made them think. Maybe I'm choosing sides in a hideous proxy war that could lead us to World War Three, and it's completely the media's fault if this war escalates into a hot war. Mm. Mm. Maybe what they intend. It's given. It's certainly given them a meaning they haven't had since the Trump era. Max, I know you have to run, but um, before you go, I ask this question to all my guests. And by the way, um, I'll have to have you back because there's so much more to talk about. But in front of you, there's a crystal ball. What do you see? 
I, I don't see a crystal ball. I see a, a laptop and I see you. <laughs> and um, my laptop, you know, as, as I call myself a laptop class trader, my laptop tells me what's ahead, which is more investigative journalism, more factual journalism, exposing the forces that are doing this to us. And it's right there. I'm looking at right at it on my laptop, including a new story we just published at the Gray Zone exposing a high-level intelligence coup in the UK called Operation Surprise uh, about how the people's will is being subverted. So that's what I'm going to continue to do. And whether it changes history or not, it's the only thing I know how to do well. Uh, and so I, I, and it's, the only, it's my only recourse against what is happening now where we're witnessing a controlled demolition of our economy and whatever was left of democracy. Where can people follow you? Well, thegrayzone.com, Max Blumenthal on Twitter, and they can find me on Real Max, Real Max Blumenthal on Telegram, and everyone knows where to find me everywhere else. And hopefully uh, they can find me again on your show in the future. They absolutely will. My name is Jim, this is Jim Wolfe. The Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.